Hey, good morning. Welcome to Calvary. Uh, if you're home checking us out online, uh, thanks for checking us out online. And man, we're so grateful for a lot of people who due to sickness or just their health situation can't make it in. I know there's a bunch of you folks online who are in other states and other places. Um, and then there's probably some of you who, man, your couch is kind of comfortable um, and you would be totally fine coming in. And I just want you to know we miss you. And we are not as rich and as full as we could be without you being part of us. So uh, we're here, and we'd encourage you, as spring is coming and the flowers are blooming, uh, you may want to come back and hang out with us. We'd, we'd love to see you. And it's great to see everybody here. It's great to see some of you that we haven't seen for a while. Um, <clears throat> great to see newer fo- faces coming in. Um, and so we're just excited. And today is a special day, an exciting day. We've got incredible staff who's literally been working for hours and hours and days and days uh, prayerfully thinking about how do we serve our church, what does that look like, what do we do um, now that, you know, almost two years ago is when this whole COVID gig started, right? I think it was March 6th, March 9th-ish that um, all of a sudden in the middle of the day, kind of as a team, we uh, had this deal, this thing that meant we may have to stop and change things and shut down. It's been two years. Um, and as two years are, we're not where we were two years ago, right? Um, and some people are still getting COVID and stuff, but man, we got to figure out what does God have for us going forward? And that's what the team and the staff has put hours into preparing because we really do have some clarity about what does God want us to do as a church? And just as importantly, what role can every single one of you who call this your church home have in that? Because there are some exciting things to do, and there are people around us who need hope, and there are people in this church who need encouragement from each other. There are a bunch of you who are so gifted, and we want to do a great job leveraging that. And so this, right after this, right, whenever the guy with the wraparound mic around his neck gets done talking and we celebrate Jesus together, we'll have an opportunity to grab some donuts, grab some coffee, and come back in here for a family meeting, which will be about an hour or so. We'll share the vision. Like I know you guys have heard this 42 times. We'll share the vision, um, and then we'll tell you how can you get involved and uh, the value of that. And we're not doing this because we're desperate for people to help Although we need people to help, we're doing this because the body of Christ functions richly and better when every single person in that body plays a role. And we would be bad pastors and ministry leaders if we didn't try to help you navigate that journey and grow in the way Jesus wants you to. So we're excited about that as well. Then you can go home and eat your Fritos and your cheese dip and your overpriced chicken wings and watch an adequate Super Bowl that you'll probably fall asleep in because who cares about those teams? I don't know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha! All right, that was prophetic word right there. I don't know if you believe in that. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into what God has for us. Father, I am grateful for the people that make up the body of Calvary Church. And you've brought amazing stories together from people that have been here for 50 and 60 years to people that have been here for a week. Um, And you're sovereign and you've knit us together and you wanna do something in us and through us. And so we want to listen to you and to obey you and to do those things. We're grateful for your word that helps direct us and guide us. And Father, we open up this morning this, this word, this uh, true story of a man a long time ago. And we are all in different places, but you are sovereign. And for some of us, this word from your text is exactly what we need to hear today. For some of us, it's what we'll need to hear a year from now. And for whatever purpose you want us to hear this, God, please work, please move. Uh, implant it in our hearts and in our souls so that we'll grow closer to you. And we're grateful. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. 
Amen. Well, if you're visiting us this morning, um, what we do is we usually open up a book of the Bible and we go through it paragraph through paragraph, kind of verse by verse. And we have did that again last week. We recently finished up a series in the book of James. And then last week we started a series in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. It's not really, I don't know why I said it. That was kind of a weird way to say it. Um, and we, we kicked it off. If you missed last week, I would encourage you, if you're going to be with us throughout this series, I think what we covered last week will be really helpful. And so maybe before the Super Bowl, uh, spend 44 minutes and watch last week's sermon. Because if, if you want to know about how different books fit into the Bo- Old Testament, if you want to just kind of get a 50,000 foot of what's the Old Testament, what does this story have to do with the whole story, we lay a lot of Old Testament background. And I think it would be helpful for you to be able to kind of know where we're coming from. But in, in high level, what we saw is that <clears throat> we were about 445 years before Jesus' birth. And about 445 years before Jesus' birth, there was this dude named Nehemiah who was a Jewish guy who was kind of in this political uh, cabinet position for a foreign king. And 445 years before Jesus was born, he learned of this gap, which we talked about last week, between God's ideal and the way that God wanted things to be and the real, the way that things actually were. They're in all of our lives and all of our stories in our culture in this moment in your neighbor's lives and people's lives. There is the way that God wants things to be. And then there are the ways that things are that are not the way God wants them to be. And Nehemiah realized this gap and this gap had to do with the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. Jerusalem had been for many years <clears throat> the capital of, uh, of the Jewish nation. And in Jerusalem, there were palaces, there was a temple, and the temple was the center of God's worship. The walls were broken down, meaning the city was not secure. The city could have been invaded at any time. And what we talked about last week is because of that, those broken walls put God's city at risk. Those broken walls put God's people at risk. And in fact, we saw that They had great calamity and despair, and they knew that life wasn't working well. And most importantly, those walls put God's worship and the worship of God at risk because people wouldn't feel safe going to the temple because the temple could be attacked because it it wouldn't be a safe way that God wanted it. There was this gap, and the gap was walls, and the walls really showed that God's city was at risk, God's people were at risk, and God's worship was potentially at risk. And Nehemiah knew that's not the way God wanted, and it grabbed his heart. And what we said is just like the way my dog Ford grabs a toy and just tugs, right? If you've ever been with a yellow lab, uh, we had some people over the other night. I don't know. What is, if anybody's a dog trainer, I'll let you have two cups of free coffee on a Sunday morning. Just come talk. My dog, if you come over to my house, I could run my dog from here to uh, Scotland, okay? He could swim across the ocean, swim back. You come over for dinner. The dog will not just stop roaming around the table. It is like, what? I mean, I don't know if he's doing meth. I don't know what is going on. But he will not stop, right? And what is particularly endearing sometimes and annoying other times is if he has a little toy and he brings the toy up to you and you make the mistake of even looking like you're going to touch it. When you grab that toy, he tugs it back. And then you tug it and he just keeps tugging and he just keeps tugging. And if you've ever played with a dog, especially a lab, and you know what that's they just keep tugging on a toy, tugging, tugging. And what we said was in much the same way, when Nehemiah saw this gap... God started tugging his heart. 
God started tugging his heart and pulling on his heart with this need that Nehemiah couldn't shake. And, and we, that was last week. You still might want to watch it. And, and we ended last week with a challenge. We ended last week with something for all of us to do. We said, hey, why don't we do three things? As we think about things around us and things that might get on our heart, we asked you to evaluate, to ask, and decide. Evaluate, ask, and decide. Evaluate, what the challenge was, was have we become desensitized to the problems around us? Have we become desensitized? When we look at different groups of people who are not being treated the way that God wants them to be treated, when we look at poverty, when we look at injustice, when we look at the number of kids who don't have parents, we can go on and on and on. When we look at people in our communities, our friendships who don't know Jesus and are just desperate for help, right? When we, have we become desensitized to the needs around us? And then the second thing to evaluate is this. Is there a particular need or problem that God is currently tugging on your heart with? Is there a particular need or problem that God's tugging your heart? We asked you to evaluate. And then the second thing we said was we asked you to ask. And we asked, said, hey, would you just spend some time this past week asking God to reveal to you that issue around him that grieves his heart that maybe he wants your heart to be engaged with. Evaluate are you desensitized or is there need? If it doesn't pop in your brain, ask God to show you the need. He's not the God of the status quo. And then the third thing we said to do <clears throat> was to decide. And decide if God shows you an area in which he wants you to step up and fill the gap, will you do it? And if you're like, nope, well, that's probably something you got to evaluate as well. Evaluate, ask, decide. That was the challenge for last week. And this week, there's probably different groups in the room. And I only had four, but I'm going to add one. Another first group is like, you guys weren't even here, so you didn't hear about this. Okay, so that's one group. Then there's another group in the room that you, you were here, you heard that, you watched it online, but for whatever reason, you didn't think once, you, once the word amen was said, this possibility that there's some needs around you, there's some possibility that you've become desensitized to that, this possibility that maybe God wants you to do something, the thought to evaluate what God wants you to do, you didn't even think about it again. You walked out the door, you turned on your minivan, and boop, gone, right? One group is that you just were here, you heard it, you understand God's word, you didn't think about it. And if you didn't think about any needs, I'm not here to beat you up, I don't know who you are, but if you didn't spend any time thinking about where is the gap around you, where is this gap between God's ideal and the real that maybe he wants you to fill? And if you heard that and you didn't spend any time thinking about it, why? Why? Well, the reason is because you thought there were more important things than thinking about maybe how God wanted to use you and life gets busy. I get that. My job is to study the Bible. I barely can do the only things I tell myself to do on a Sunday morning, right? I know it's hard, but I don't want you to miss out on opportunity. Some of you, for, for a variety of reasons, just didn't even think about it. Then there's this other group that you heard, the minute I started talking about God tugging on your heart last week, like a yellow lab, you're like, oh my goodness. Like, God, seriously? I know exactly what you want me to do. I know exactly how you want me to care, where you want me to step up, and I've been praying about it. And you, some of you, the second group of people, right, you knew the exact need or issues that God's tugging at your heart about. There's a third group that, that you weren't here. You weren't here. That's why you were in a third group. And the third group is, you, you know, you, you don't quite know exactly what it is, but you know that God's doing something in your heart. 
you sense this, this, this preparation. We used the word last week, a holy, last week, a holy discontent. And in your story, in your life, in your faith, in your journey, you sense a holy discontent where there's just this unsettlement and you feel that God's preparing you to do something. You don't yet know what it is, but you're pressing into it, right? And then the, the final group is just kind of like a little bit of all this. You, you don't feel a tug. You don't necessarily feel God pulling you, but man, if he does, you're willing. You're willing. You're like, God, I'm in. When you let me know, as you let me know, I am ready. Four or five different groups, right, of people today. And, and I, for this group, right, two, three, or four, for the people in that group, what do you do? If, if you're in a group of, and, and you feel that tug and you know God's calling you, if you're in a group where you don't yet know what it is, but you sense this stirring, you sense that there's a next season, you sense there's a next chapter, you sense that there's something down the road around a bend that you can't quite see, but, but, but you're headed towards it. Or if you're like, yeah, I don't really sense any of that, but man, I, I want to have a life of value and serving. And what we said last week is when we're talking about filling the needs, it doesn't necessarily mean it's something extraordinary. It doesn't necessarily mean you sell everything and go start an orphanage somewhere, but it could. But sometimes the most faithful things we can do for God are live faithfully in the ordinary moments of life, even if the extraordinary never comes. If you're in this group of people, well, what do you do? What do you do today? What do you do tomorrow? And that kind of brings us to, well, what did Nehemiah do? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And we're going to see three things to do when you see a gap between God's ideal and the real. Three things to do when you see a gap between God's ideal and the real. And so I'm just going to read it all, and then we're going to come back. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. As soon as I heard these words, those were the words we talked about last week, when the walls are down and the people are in, in calamity, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And I'm just going to read one more little blurb because we're going to talk about in the month of Nisan. Okay, there you go. You're like, dude, that was random. But, But here's the question and here's why the month of Nisan is important. What did Nehemiah do first? His brother and some buddies rolled in and like, bro, there is a huge problem, right? There's chaos. What was the first thing he does? Well, there's a pretty big uh, truth buried in some of the, the words of this text. And we know when Nehemiah first heard about this problem. 
We know when Nehemiah first heard it, because we studied it last week. It happened, verse 1, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, right? So Nehemiah first heard about this in the month of Chislev. Chislev is the Hebrew slash Persian calendar, but if it was our calendar, that would be December. Nehemiah setting up his Christmas trees. He's finishing up his shopping, right? He's drinking some hot cider by the fireplace in the Summer Palace, and he hears the news in December. I ended this reading because what we'll see next week is when Nehemiah starts to put his strategy, when Nehemiah starts to take a step of his plan when he first does this, and we read that, that now it happened in the, right, verse 2, chapter 1, verse No, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, right? In the month of Nisan, I took up wine and gave it to the king. Nehemiah heard about the problem in December. Nehemiah didn't take an affirmative step to roll out his strategic plan until April. That is December, January, February, March, April. Or January, February, March, April. For four months, you know what Nehemiah did? He waited. He waited, heard about the need here. He did not hop on a bus to go to Jerusalem to start fixing it. He did not, an hour later, start texting all of his friends, oh my goodness, there's something I think God wants me to do. I'm having a special town hall meeting tonight, come to it, right? He didn't talk to the king. He didn't create a PowerPoint deck about how to fix it. For four months, Nehemiah waited, deeply grabbed by the problem. We saw that he's mourning. We saw that his heart was broken, right? He, it wasn't that he was apathetic. It's just that he didn't impulsively rush off to just start doing stuff. I'll never forget one Christmas we uh, gave my son when he was uh, not 20 or whatever, right? We, I don't know how it was, eight, nine, seven, somewhere there. Uh, we gave him what you give every boy of that age. Don't email me about this either. You can tell I'm like, right, too many emails. We gave him a Nerf gun, okay? Nerf gun, sorry if you don't like it. Hey, if I was in South Carolina, we'd have given him a real gun. So <clears throat> we, we gave him a Nerf gun, right? And he was so excited because he'd wanted this. And before I could even be like, and this was like, this wasn't just like a little poop. This was like, you know, 42 chambers. It loads from your back. Angels deliver the Nerf ball. It was complicated, right? Rapid fire. And there's like lots of moving parts. And you got to, and I'm like, bro, before I could even tell him to slow down, he literally had just started ramming these plastic pieces together in the Nerf gun because he just wanted to fix it. He just was impulsive. He wasn't going to wait. He was going to do something. He got, but you know what he did? He did it wrong. And he put one piece in the wrong way, and it was backwards, and that was, the, that was the one piece that if you put it in the wrong way and it was backwards, guess what? That gun won't going to work. And in his rush and his impulsiveness, he took a step, but that step ended up making the whole thing fall apart and wasn't any usefulness to it. Nehemiah didn't rush off impulsively. He waited. He waited to further discern what God, you know, specifically wanted him to do. But more importantly, he waited to further discern how God wanted him to do it. He he had an idea of the problem. Okay, so God, what do you want me to do about the problem? How do you want me to do that about the problem? And as he was discerning that, he waited for four months. We hate waiting. 
I hate waiting. When something in my house breaks, and it's not like a big thing, right? But like, if this iPad breaks right now, if I drop it, man, it makes me nervous. If I guess what, I'm going to go to the Apple store on the way home. I'm getting me a new one because I don't want to wait. But sometimes God makes us do the things we don't want to do, and he makes us wait. Here's the first thing to do when you see that gap. Wait to get more clarity on your call. Wait to get more clarity on the call. If you feel God tugging you, if you're kind of in that group two or three, man, then and maybe you just need to, okay, just exhale, and it would be wise for you to spend some time waiting to discern the when, the where, the how, the who. It doesn't mean that you're not still burdened. It doesn't mean that you're not still passionate about it. It just means that sometimes it's wise to keep waiting instead of just start acting. All right, the first thing that Nehemiah did for four months, the dude waited to get more clarity on his call and not just the what to do, not just the gap to fill, but how do I fill that gap? Now, we need to balance this <clears throat> with some other truths. Because here's the reality about our faith. Um, many times if we end up on one extreme or the other, that, that's not where the Christian faith exists. There's always truths that need to be balanced by other truths. And I'm not talking about like the truth that Jesus is the only way. But yeah, yeah, this is a truth. But on the other hand, sometimes that very truth can get us stuck there. right? Because sometimes what God does is, yeah, we, it is wise to sometimes wait. But on the other hand, God sometimes will make you take a step of obedience without giving you all the information about how it's all going to end up. Sometimes it is important, and that's what Nehemiah's story teaches. Okay, let, just don't impulsively run off to meet the Just wait, discern, right? But sometimes once you know the first thing God wants you to do, he's not going to show you the tenth thing to do. He's going to say, I'm going to put the first step before you, and I want you to act obediently in that step. And when you act obediently in that step, I'm going to unveil to you the next step. And here's the second truth to balance this truth with, because this happens a lot. Do not use waiting as an excuse to not obey what God's calling you to do. Do not use waiting as an excuse to delay obeying your call. And sometimes we get stuck there. Sometimes you know exactly what God wants you to do, and you know exactly some insight into how he wants you to do it. And you know the first step of the story, and you're not trying to discern that anymore. You know it, you're trying to delay it. Because it's scary, and it's uncertain, and there's risk, and there's fear, and there's unknowns. And sometimes what we do is when we know, you know what we still say? Well, I just got to pray about it a little longer. Uh, well, yeah, I can distinctly remember two different, as my call to seminary was kind of all, Coming together, I remember two conversations that happened quickly. I, I felt called to go to seminary. I was doing the lawyer gig and went through a process of kind of discernment and discipleship. I waited for a while because I wanted to make sure this wasn't, wasn't me. Um, and it came to a point, though, I, I distinctly remember that I knew I was supposed to go. I knew I was supposed to walk away from the law, sell my boat. <sighs> but you know what? I didn't want to do it. Because it was scary. 
It was scary. And I remember talking to one of the guys who was the guy who was mentoring me through it. And I made, he was a lawyer too. And I made the mistake in the conversation of like, I let it slip. And I said something like, I mean, I know I'm supposed to go to seminary, but I'm just trying to figure out if I'm supposed to go to seminary. It's like, what? <laughs> Objection. He's like, bro, you just told me you know you're supposed to go. So we ain't going to try to figure it out no more. And followed up with that, I remember coming home to my wife, Casey, and she's like, you know what, dude? If God's calling us to go, let's go. And I was using waiting, discerning as a means to stall my call. Right? And I'm not saying none of, that you have to go to seminary, but I'm saying some of you, you know God wants you to talk to your neighbor. You know it. Well, at least one person laughed in the back. <laughs> but you don't want to. Because that's you putting yourself out there. So you know what you're going to do? You're going to go to community group and, will you just pray for me that I know whether I should go talk to my neighbor? Wait to get more clarity, but, but, but don't use this as an excuse because that will hunt you down and kick you in your shins. Balance that with the other truths of sometimes God will lead you to take one step before you know all the steps and don't use waiting as an excuse to disobey your call. There's things that God does in our lives in the waiting. And I'm taking this from another pastor who, who observed these things. The first thing is when we wait, he allows the need and the idea to mature within us. As Nehemiah just kept thinking about the walls are broken down, the wall, that, that just grew within him. You know what else happens as we wait? God prepares us to meet the need. As we prepare and think about meeting a need, in those moments God is preparing us to get to a place of meeting the need. And the third thing that happens when we wait and... Um, during my sabbatical, I got some coaching slash counseling, and the guy that I had a great opportunity to meet with brought this up, and it's something from another path. But that, here's the third thing. God is working behind the scenes to prepare the way. As we wait, we allow the, God allows the need to develop and to mature. As we wait, God prepares us to meet the need as we wait to meet the need. And as we wait, God is working behind the scenes to smooth the way. Or at least to have a bumpy way, right, under his sovereign control. There's a great line. God is doing in this moment about 30 million things all at the same time. And we're aware of about two of them. At this moment, God's doing 30 million things at the same time in your story and in the story of people around us. And you and I, we can maybe see like two of them. <clears throat> Nehemiah was waiting, but even though he was waiting, he wasn't passively waiting. He wasn't waiting in a disengaged way. He was waiting, but he was actually kind of doing something. He was actively doing something in his waiting. What was he actively doing as he was waiting? Verse 4, he tells us, as, as soon as I heard these words, right, he doesn't run off to fix it. He waits, but as he waits, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And in the prayer that I read, what we see is that this praying was something that he had continued to do because in verse 6, he says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night, right? Two words, right? He said before, here, I'm praying, God, I am praying this before you day and night, waiting, but praying as I wait. 
Before, he used the word, I continually am praying this before you. Here's the second thing to do in those moments, right, when you sense a gap as you're trying to figure out what to do. Wait to get clarity and pray as you wait and as you wait, pray. Pray as you wait and as you wait, pray. And when I say pray, like Nehemiah actually prayed day and night continually going to God with this burden, this tug, this pull on his heart that he didn't quite know all the pieces, but you know what he knew? He, he knew he knew God, and he prayed. And, and the beautiful thing about the book of Nehemiah, and it was a, it's a different way that we may package some of the sermons, but Nehemiah has two to three different types of prayers. In different, right, what we see here now is like dude is praying repeatedly, spending time. There's other moments when something's about to happen. He's like, okay, God, help me. Help me, boom, and he goes and does it, right? But, but, but here, he's prioritizing it. And I know sometimes for me when something's in my life that I don't know what God wants me to do, I mean, I kind of pray about it, kind of sometimes. But then there's other moments where, I mean, I'm just, I'm just praying, repeatedly, purposefully, consistently, because I don't know what to do. The only thing I do know is if I don't know what to do, I can mess it up pretty badly. And so I pray. And for some of us, maybe you're in a season of life where you sense a tug, you don't sense a tug. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're waiting. You're stuck. You're waiting for the marriage to get better. You're waiting for the kid to come back right? You're, you're waiting to find out what happens in the job, what happens in the retirement, and, and, and as you wait, don't wait passively. Wait prayerfully. Pray as you wait. Wait as you pray. Prayer is not an avoidance of action. Prayer is the way that we prepare for action. Prayer is not an avoidance of action. Prayer is the way that we prepare for action. Are you praying? If there's something around you that breaks your heart, again, we've, we, we could spend 40 hours walking through all the things in this. We live in a broken world. We live in broken churches in a broken world. We live in broken families who go to broken churches in a broken world. We could get a big old dry erase board and just start writing all the needs around us. There is no shortage of needs. There's a shortage of people who love Jesus and think well, who are willing to put themselves out there to meet a need. It's not a shortage of God's ability to meet a need. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me to meet a need. He's not like, oh, I'm so confused. What do I, he's like, I could fix it like that, but I want to use you because there's something in it that's good for you. There's a way that you rising up to meet a need makes you more like Jesus, and that's the end goal of this whole story. Are you praying about a need that you see? And if God is asking you to stand in the gap, no matter what that means, maybe you need to step up as a dad because you've disengaged. Maybe whatever it is, are you praying about it? Nehemiah waited to get clarity. Nehemiah prayed as he waited, and as he waited, he prayed. And then there's a third thing that we see from Nehemiah about what to do when a need or a problem grabs our heart. Here it is, right? This is the third thing. Maintain a proper view 
of God and of yourself. You're waiting, something's tugged on you, or you feel being prepared for something to tug, or you don't know what yet has tugged, but you're willing. So you wait, you pray, and as you do those things, maintain a proper view of God and of yourself. What does Nehemiah's prayer reveal about God and about Nehemiah's prayer of God? Verse 5, we see this. And I said, O Lord God of heaven. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenants and steadfast love, right? Lots in a 30-word sentence or whatever it is, what, what Nehemiah realized is, man, God's different than him. And this isn't, oh, God of one of many God. This is God in a different place than me who is not just a better version of me, who is great and awesome, who is majestic and powerful and strong and good and all-present and all-knowing and all-powerful, who keeps promises and who does every single thing through steadfast love. What Nehemiah realized was God's not Mr. Rogers. God's not a principal who's trying to give you detention when you mess up. God's not just the improved version of Nehemiah. God is different and transcendent and yet close and loving and majestic and holy and other and real and can do anything and made everything and not a fairy tale. Nehemiah had that view of God. He had a high view of God, which is the proper view of God. There are 44 references to God in this prayer. At least that's what a commentator told me. I didn't count them all. Somebody's about to. 44 references to God in her prayer. You know what that shows? This was a God-centered prayer by a God-focused man. A God-centered prayer by a God-focused man. And here's what's so amazing about it. Go back to the verse if you don't mind. Sorry to mess you up. Nehemiah saw a huge need. There is a massive city with massive need walls that are torn down. Nehemiah is one dude who's in the wrong place, in the wrong country, working for the wrong man. He's working for the dude who stopped the rebuilding project, right? This is like Nehemiah saw this was a big need. This wasn't just like, oh, we need more coffee filters, right? But what Nehemiah saw was, yeah, there's a big need, but I got a big God. I got a big God. And some of you, the need that you're looking out at, it seems so big. It seems so overwhelming. It seems so daunting. But God's bigger. God's bigger. And again, like we said last week, just because you can't meet every need doesn't mean he's not asking you to meet some need. Nehemiah saw a big need, but he saw a God who was bigger. He, like we said now and showed this, right? He maintained a proper view of God, and a proper view of God in views involves a high view of God. <clears throat> a proper view of God involves a high view of God. What do you think about when you think about God? Do I even spend enough time when I think about God thinking about God? I don't. I don't. I'm flippant, I'm cavalier. And I see, our view of God is something we have to balance because he is holy, he is different, he is majestic, he is not common. 
but at the same time, he is close and personal and loving and wants us to authentically come before him. And, and we have to hold those two things in tension. And when we steer to other, any side, if we steer too much and only to seeing God with his love and his kindness, then we reduce God to Mr. Rogers. And if we only see God and his majesty and his otherness, then he can become cold and distant. But that, God reveals himself as both. And when you think about God, what do you think? When you think about God, what do you think? And for some of you who are like, bro, I, you know, I, I know what you think. I don't. Hey, some of you, even if you don't believe in Christianity, you should at least know what a Christian view of God is. You should know what a Christian view of God is. This book will give you a Christian view of God because there's way too many people who think they don't want anything to do with Jesus or Christianity because those of us who are in leadership of Christianity have just blown it big time. Don't allow the flaw of a leader or the failures of a leader to turn you off from what God is like. Whether a pastor in any church is an absolute idiot, and we are, has nothing to do with whether Jesus came back from the dead. And if Jesus came back from the dead, that's kind of a big deal. Just don't want to break it to you in case you got a little frostbitten on the way here this morning. But how many times have we just seen failures in churches and bad responses to things and we've thrown out everything or walked away from everything because a couple of people didn't represent Jesus well? Just because us pastors don't always do it right and just because us pastors many times do it wrong has absolutely nothing to do with if Jesus actually walked out of the grave. And if he walked out of the grave, Man, you anchor yourself to your faith even when a bunch of leaders around you fail. When you think about, this is why I'm glad we have one service today. I could never redo that all for a second service. I'd be like, I don't know, Nehemiah, Nerf guns, whatever, have a good day. <clears throat> but that's not what I do for you at the second service normally. It's very meaningful normally. <laughs> all right. Nehemiah's prayer then also reveals not just what he sees about God, but what he views about himself. And I don't know if you heard it when I read it. There was this word that, that, that um, we heard many times about Nehemiah. Verse 6, he says this. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray day and night for the people of Israel. Your servants. Right? Verse 11, we see something. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your... Yes! Quick as... You're so much better than the early service, right? Servant today and grant him mercy. Right? The word that's repeated through that is servants, 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 servants. Nehemiah had a high view of God, but when he was talking about himself in relation to that God, when he was talking about the people in relation to that God, the word that he repeatedly used was servant, servant, servant. Nehemiah refers to himself as a servant because what Nehemiah is affirming is that his life is not ultimately about his agenda or his plan or his path. It's about God's. A proper view of God is a view of God that has a high view of God, and a proper view of God has a proper understanding of ourselves in relationship to God and realizes that God is in charge and your job is to serve him. 
God is in charge. And your job is to serve him. As we're waiting on that tug, you know, as we feel the tug, we don't know exactly what to do next. We wait, we pray, and as we wait and we pray, we maintain a proper view of God, which is a high view of God. And we also understand our view of ourselves that God is in charge and we serve him. When I got, we got COVID, you know, a while ago, um, over the holidays, and uh, four of the six of us went down, and man, you guys, just some friends and others were very kind uh, to provide some meals, which were a blessing, and some folks were very gracious to provide Grubhub gift cards. Grubhub. I felt like I'd entered the, whatever century it is, man, right? Uh, you guys familiar with the Grubhub? No? Okay, good. All right, we've grubbed hub donuts for you in a little bit. No, we haven't. Right, well, here's what the deal is Grubhub. You can sit on your couch, right? You can sit on your couch and you pull out the phone and you get to pick the time you want your food delivered. You get to pick the place you want your food delivered to. You get to pick the place from which your food comes. Grubhub is all about you. It is all about, well, really it's about them making some money, but they're making money by trying to tell you it's all about you. It's about your convenience. It's about having it happen when you want, how you want, where you want, time you want. It is a Grubhub is about you doing as little as possible to get exactly what you want. Grubhub is about, Amazon Prime is about you doing as little possible to get exactly what you want. And I think the problem for some of us is that we've become Grubhub Christians. We've become Grubhub Christians. And we've turned our faith into doing as little as possible, and yet we want to get exactly what we want. Some of us have become Grubhub Christians. Maybe some of us have become Grubhub churchgoers, doing as little as possible to get exactly what we want. That is amazing when you're ordering General Sal's chicken. It is great when you need a new Swiffer delivered to you tomorrow on your door by Amazon Prime. But maybe it's not so great when we have an opportunity to be used by the King of kings and Lord of lords who's got a great plan for your life, who has designed you in advance, created you to do good works, which is prepared in advance for you to do. And like we said last week, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth looking for a person whose heart is fully committed to him so that he can use him and her and them. That ain't Grubhub. And see, we live in a culture that screams, it's all about you, all about you. You don't need no authority over you. You don't need anybody keeping you down. You do not need to be inconvenienced. You don't need to do anything that you want to do. You don't need to be told what you do. You don't, right? you don't need to listen to a different opinion, all about you. And yet we have a faith that screams, it's all about him. It's all about him. And here's the danger in all of that, right? When we make it all about us, 
we're a whole lot less likely to look for and to see and to be aware of the needs around us and the gap between God's uh, real and the ideal. When we make it all about us, we're a whole lot less likely to see the needs that God may want us to step up and meet. But when we make it all about him, it will reframe and change and alter the way in which you and I choose to respond to the needs that we see around us. Nehemiah was a guy who saw a need and it broke his heart because God was tugging. And instead of being impulsive, and the worship team can come up here as we move off transition to communion, instead of being impulsive for four months, he waited. And he waited not to just necessarily, he knew the gap, but he didn't quite know what he was supposed to do, and he certainly didn't know how to do it. And so he waited to get clarity. He waited for that need to, to mature. He waited for God to prepare him more fully to meet that need. He waited, and he prayed. And as he prayed, he kept a high view of God, and as he prayed, he realized the proper view of himself, that everything in his life was intended, that he was a servant of God. And then it wasn't about him, that it's all about God. Jesus saw a need. The Son, right? Member of the Trinity Triune God, Jesus saw a need. And if there was anybody who didn't have to do a thing to meet that need, it would be God. But the need that he saw was you and me out of relationship with himself. And the need that he saw was you and I being in a place where we were potentially facing the punishment of God for the sins that we've committed. And God, as a holy God, does have to punish sin, but God, as a loving God, didn't want to punish you and doesn't want to punish you. And there was this need about what is a just God going to do when he's confronted with sin and what is a loving God going to do when he realizes that punishment has to be offered for that sin. That was a gap. That was a need. That was a problem. And Jesus, instead of saying, nope, man, Jesus stepped out to meet that need, and he stepped out by meeting that need by giving up everything. Everything. Did he always want to do it? He didn't, right? He prayed the night, Lord, let this pass if it's possible. But in his love for you, he sacrificed himself. And the story isn't just a night. It's a story of him saying, God, Father God, punish me for the sins of those people so that they never experience punishment from you and only experience love and forgiveness. That's the story of Christianity. The story of Christianity is that somebody was punished for your sin so that the only thing you will ever experience from God is love and you will never suffer punishment for your sins. Consequences, maybe. Punishment, no. And so we as a community, as a body, right, in a situation, in a scenario where there's so many needs around us and divisions around us and conflict around us and chaos around us, we have these moments to pause and to say, you know what, some people like Starbucks, some people like Duncan. But man, what unites us is not whether Starbucks or Duncan, what unites us is our common faith in Jesus, who did act to meet a need. And so now we remember this, and remember this, I invite you to grab these packets of communion elements, and I'll just read to you what a pastor, a guy named Paul, who gave up so much to constantly meet a need around him. Whenever Paul felt God tug, man, he went. He went. And did it cost him a lot? Yeah. Did God work through him mightily? Yeah. 
When Paul got to heaven, did Jesus welcome and say, well done, you good and faithful servant? Absolutely. And I promise you, all the nights in jail for Paul were worth it in that moment. And Paul looks back and writes about Jesus, a person that he saw himself as a servant of, and he wrote these words. And if you're a believer, I'd invite you to participate in this. If you're still trying to figure out Christianity, what the Bible says is, man, this is something Christians do to remember Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then this isn't something that you should do. But for those of us who believe in Jesus, here are the words of Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd invite you to take and eat. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We serve a risen king who wants to do marvelous things in your story and through your story, who one day will come back and make it all well. And until that day comes, we remember that day, we look forward to that day, and we're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus as we take this cup together now. invite you to grab some coffee and some donuts and then we'll start our family meeting. Let's end our time in worship together.